This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. We're at episode number 187. And we have a treat for the uranium people out there. We have the Q&A of the Cameco conference call. And I was going to do the regular part of the conference call, but it kind of was nothing new. It's stuff we've all kind of heard before. And we had just featured a Cameco conference call in the last quarter. And so I didn't want to do a repeat. I thought there would be more in the actual first part of the announcement on all the change in the uranium price and what's going on. But what ended up happening is they put most of that content into an extended Q&A session after Tim Gitzels, the CEO of Camco's, remarks on the quarter. And then they took questions. And then we got a front row seat, really, on what's going on in the uranium market. So this is an exciting episode for those that are curious, because there's a lot of hype out there. And one of the things about the uranium market is it's just an opaque market. You'll even hear in this conference call how difficult it is to get a spot price. It sounds like there isn't a spot price. There's two experts uh, from the sounds of it, and one of them is sort of backward-looking, and another one, another organization, they're forward-looking. So if Cameco has problems getting a uranium price how about you and me just using Google? So that is all coming up. And so that is, uh, I'm excited to present that to you. It's a little long. It's 40 minutes. So I gave it all to you, though, because in the interest of education, I thought you simply had to hear all of this. So very interesting discussion there. And what else do we have? We have, the again, the Canadian Mining Symposium is coming up on June 16th to 18th. If you want to register, just go to our Twitter page, at Northern Miner, and on the pinned tweet at the top, you can get a direct link to register, and registration is free. We have a lot of heavy hitters there. We have Sean Boyd from Agnico Eagle and Don Lindsay from Tech Resources, to name a couple. And Don Lindsay, he's getting a bit of pressure from investors about ESG and even about compensation. So lucky to have Don Lindsay coming up in a month because he's actually starting to make headlines. He's in our newspaper that's coming up and that is going to the press tonight. And so there is all sorts of stuff going on out there. So that is the Canadian Mining Symposium. Another way to go is just go to northernminer.com, hover over events and click on Canadian Mining Symposium, Mining Days in Canada. You know, and overall, I think as we look at things, I think things are feeling a lot more optimistic out there, aren't they? You heard Moderna it came out with their very promising results from their vaccine, uh, I mean, unbelievably fast. And from the sounds of it, it sounds like with a moderate dose of the vaccine, you are left with as many antibodies as someone who has had COVID-19. So that sounds very promising, but nevertheless, with all of this speed, people are still talking about spring of 2021 before anything like that comes out. So that's how long this could take. And who knows, maybe that's optimistic, according to some people. And the market has responded. And the question that's in my mind, I mean, I think I treat the stock market like I treat everything else, which is like a narrative. And... This market, I'd say a week ago or two weeks ago, we were talking about how it was at this kind of moment, a wait and see moment and see, is it going to turn up or turn down? And this is after its huge climb and it's turned up. And especially on the Moderna news yesterday, but I have the feeling, editorializing here, this has all the marks of a sucker's rally from my limited perspective. And Talking about the stock market as a narrative, like I'm always looking for the perverse narrative when it comes to the stock market. If there's a perverse interpretation of what could happen, I sort of put my money on that. And here we had this kind of big rally off the bottom in March, March 23rd, 
And then we had this sort of wait and see moment about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and it's turned up and now we got the vaccine. So it looks like we sail off into the sunset. We're good to go. Then you have to say, well, what's the perverse interpretation? Everybody piles in and then it falls. So who knows, but that's my non-fundamental analysis, I suppose more of a sentimental, psychological, Greek tragedian narrative interpretation. Yeah, I bring Greek tragedy interpretation to the stock market. And uh, let's see how it works. Let's check in in a couple of weeks or a month and see if the, the tragic Greek interpretation as value. So with that, let's move on to the news. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at northernminer. Find us on Instagram at the northernminer. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we host these podcasts. And you can also find us on Spotify and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, on to the news. Turning to the website, I thought we would start with First Majestic here because silver is on an absolute tear. The gold bug logic has been basically right that silver follows gold. And in the last two trading days, I think silver was up. It was up dramatically. I think the first day was up five or six percent and then it was like three or four percent yesterday. So silver is on a tear. Eric Sprott looking like a smart man. And so let's start with First Majestic, and they have run into issues with taxes in Mexico. It says here, this is a story by Cecilia Jamazmi from Mining.com, that First Majestic Silver has initiated an arbitration process against Mexico under the North American Free Trade Agreement over a dispute over taxes. The Canadian miners said the notice served to the Mexican government kicks off a 90-day process for the Lopez Obrador administration to enter into negotiations with the company. First Majestic argues that the tax authority has, quote, exhibited a total disregard for the applicable provisions of three separate double taxation treaties. It also said the agency has, quote, unlawfully opted to ignore, end quote, an advanced pricing agreement governing the tax on silver sales between 2010 and 2014 by the miners' subsidiary Primero Empresa Minera. And further, the Vancouver-based miner said efforts to resolve the dispute had been met with, quote, intimidation tactics. Attempts to challenge such lines of action in Mexico's legal system in turn had been thwarted by the coronavirus pandemic as most courts are unavailable for hearings, it said. It's a nice thing about mining in Mexico, isn't it, that we have this North American Free Trade Agreement. There's a sense, uh, as I listen to all the commentary from the big hedge fund guys to the, you know, outlier gold bugs, and there is a general sense that it's becoming more and more important to have your mine in a secure place. And uh, what's nice about Mexico is there is that North American Free Trade Agreement. And you can see that you can just, as a company, there's recourse. There's something you can do. It's not that you have to just simply rely on Mexico. There are agreements in place. So anyways, continuing on here, First, First Majestic has three producing mines and several projects, and they are all located in Mexico. And interestingly, I mean, their stock, I think they were up 12% in the last trading day. And like their stock has rocket launched off the lows on March 23rd. Nevertheless, check this out. The miner posted a first quarter loss of $32 million compared to a profit in the same period last year. So maybe that's COVID-19 related. And here we have a quote from Keith Newmeyer who is president and CEO, quote, as the COVID-19 pandemic sparked higher than normal volatility in the metals market near the end of the quarter, we temporarily suspended our silver and gold sales as paper prices dropped significantly below true physical prices. These inventoried ounces have been carried over into the second quarter and will be sold as prices improve. Well, you know, delaying your sales, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, I think silver at the low was at $13. Now it's above $17. Looks like quite an astute move, actually. And we're going to see similar things going on with Cameco. 
And so, yeah, that is first majestic. Uh, we will see what happens here. We don't have any quote from the Mexican government, but we will continue to follow the story. And in other governmental news, we have the news that Canada may review the Endeavor Samafo merger. And this is also by Cecilia Jamasmi from Mining.com. Canadian authorities may launch a national security review of the imminent merger between Endeavor Mining and Samafo, which would create West Africa's top gold producer. The proposed deal would bring together six mines into one portfolio, with a combined production estimated at over 1 million ounces per year. In a financial update, Quebec-based Samafo said the Director of Investments under the Investment Canada Act had recently contacted Endeavor. In the communication, the director told the miner that the Innovation, Science, and Economic Development Minister was considering whether to put the proposed merger under scrutiny. Neither company was aware of any reasons for the notice, Smafo said, adding that Endeavor would work with the director to address any concerns. If I remember this right, this mine was sold for a song because of security issues and that they just wanted out. Minister Navdeep Ains has until June 25th to make a decision on a review of the $1 billion deal. I guess that's not a song. Uh, announced in March. Samafo noted that while its head office is located in Montreal, it has no mining operations in Canada. Its assets are all related to gold production and exploration in Burkina Faso. And yeah, Samafo's shares have lost more than 50% of their value since early November 2019, when a convoy of mine employees was attacked in eastern Burkina Faso particularly dangerous region of Burkina Faso. The ambush caused at least 37 deaths and triggered an operations halt at the Bungu mine. Work to process stockpiles at the mine plant was restarted in February, just recently, with employees and contractors transported by air and lodged on site. The planned resumption of mining in the fourth quarter, however, is conditional on improvements to security on the public road and in the surrounding region, Samafo said. So... It's interesting to wonder what the Canadian government, or if it's it's not clear here if it's the Canadian or the Quebec government, one wonders what the exact concern is. I mean, it is a hot spot for terrorist activity. And so maybe it's simply a due diligence on the government's part. If things are trading hands, we want to know everything about what's going on over here. Or maybe it's something else. Interesting to see. Now let's turn over to this tech resources story. Pressure builds on tech resources CEO Don Lindsay. Tech is facing pressure from investors who want the company to divest its energy and coal business and replace longstanding chief executive officer Don Lindsay. And this is also by Cecilia Jamasmi. Connecticut-based Impala Asset Management has emerged this week as the second investor in a month to criticize Lindsay's guidance. In excerpts of a letter to the Miners Board published by Bloomberg, the firm blames tech CEO for what it calls, quote, destruction of shareholder value. Impala also claims that Lindsay receives one of the biggest paychecks in the industry, $9.2 million Canadian, including $1.64 million in salary last year. Impala's claims add to Tribeca Investment Partners' recent concerns the Australian hedge fund shareholder said in April that investors should push tech to become a pure base metals miner. See, the ESG is omnipresent. The move, it said, would improve tech's environmental credentials and could lead to a six-fold share gain over the next year. Interesting. Improve your ESG, watch your share price rise. Trebecca also said the Vancouver-based miner should oust Lindsay and scrap its dual-class shares to boost returns. So a second call to oust the CEO, Don Lindsay, who once again is going to be at the Canadian Mining Symposium. So sharpen your pencils, get your questions ready. This could be a good interview coming up. Earlier this month, Tech seemed to have taken its first step in this direction of ESG by leaving the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. The industry organization represents about 80% of the country's oil and gas. They also withdrew their application to build the $20.6 billion Frontier oil sands mine. And they continue to be a player in the oil sand sector, however, uh, with their 21.3 ownership of Fort Hills, which is operated by Suncor Energy. 
and they have some coal as well. So you can read this all on northernminer.com. Pressure builds on tech resources, CEO. It's also in the paper this week, and we thought we'd balance this out with a big speech that Don Lindsay gave at the Bank of America Securities Conference, and it was very interesting. So here we have both sides. It's going to be in the paper, and you can also find that story on northernminer.com. And what I found most interesting, I noted it in the headline, is that tech is really focusing on copper. It sounds like they want to kind of divest from their coal and move towards copper as kind of an energy metal of the future and electrification, battery metals, all that stuff. And just a final note on that, uh, you've heard Barrick CEO Mark Bristow also praise copper. Bristow is incredibly bullish on copper from what I've heard. It's very interesting to watch these CEOs and what they're saying and where their priorities are. Because copper, it's sort of like, not to take too many tangents here, but if we go to Camco, their position is that they are an environmentally friendly company and that they are really uh, ready to help uh, reduce carbon emissions. And so, I mean, they're mining uranium and potentially creating nuclear waste, which is enormously uh, toxic, but they can kind of have it both ways because it is reducing carbon emissions as long as you know what to do with your uranium waste. I don't know if they talk about that, but you see how mining companies are starting to position themselves in this kind of uh, having their cake and eating it too. We are mining resources, but we are good for the planet. And hey, no one's saying that that's not possible. Why not? And continuing on, just going to got a couple more stories here. Guiana Goldfields has rejected Grand Columbia's merger offer, and they are supporting the Silvercorp bid. And this was a bit of a mystifying one. This is by our new Vancouver correspondent, Steve Stacu. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it here. Guiana Goldfields has rebuffed an, an unsolicited proposal from Grand Columbia Gold for an all-share three-way merger that includes Goldex Mining, instead reaffirming its support of an earlier takeover by Silvercorp Metals of 60 cents in cash or 0.1195 parts of a Silvercorp share to a maximum of $33 million for an implied overall valuation of $105 million. Why this is interesting is Grand Columbia's proposal represented a premium to the Silvercorp transaction. However, Guiana Goldfields says it still views Silvercorp's offer, specifically the cash component to shareholders, as a better offer. And they also say there's access to a stronger treasury to buffer potential funding risks associated with the underground development at its Aurora mine in Guiana, where they've been having issues, as discussed in previous episodes. Now, it's quite a significant difference, though. The Silvercorp bid is $0.60 cents per share, whereas the Grand Columbia amounts to $0.90 cents per share. And yet, Guiana Goldfield still wants to go with Silvercorp. So just something to pay attention to. There's quite a bit here, but I'm just sort of taking bits and pieces. Guiana Goldfield's Aurora Mine has experienced operational challenges over the last couple of years as it has fallen short of achieving its targeted open pit mining rates and saw contained gold in proven and probable reserves at Aurora slashed by 43% over a year ago. So they were a troubled operation over there. So just a sort of a bit of a mystifying thing, I guess the cash, I mean, one assumes you could liquidate shares. I mean, from my kind of layperson's view here, I still don't understand why an offer that's 50% higher by Grand Columbia would be rejected. But maybe it's just the way these deals are structured and there are more subtleties here. Anyways, there's quite a bit in the article, but just a noteworthy piece. And finally, following the silver excitement is another story by Cecilia... Shemazmi, that mining in Mexico has restarted as we are past the May 18th opening day. And so they are back in business. Newmont, the world's number one gold producer, is gradually bringing its Penasquito mine back online. The ramp up is expected to take roughly two weeks to reach stable production levels. Alamos Gold said on May 14th that it would begin ramping up operation at its Mulatos mine on May 18th. 
Now, don't forget that incredible, I call it the Great Plane Robbery, that occurred at the Mulatto's Mine, where the plane came in and stuck everyone up, took the gold, and flew away. That kind of had a lot of imagination in it. So they expect to be back in business in June, and Torex Gold is targeting the end of May to resume full production at its El Limon Guajas mining complex. And Santa Cruz Silver Mining has also outlined plans to restart mining and milling operations at its Zimapan mine. And there's also First Majestic, Pan American, Argonaut Gold, Sierra Metals, and Exelon Resources who are expected to unveil plans. And finally, there's just a little bit on silver here. Mexico is responsible for nearly 23% of world production of silver, uh, churning out more than 200 million ounces last year. Yeah, and you're really seeing silver take off. So let's actually take a closer look at that. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. We'd like to thank once again our friends at Infomine.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. And if you ever want to find them for yourself, just put in Infomine and metal prices into Google and this page will appear. And on May 19th, gold is trading at $1,736.61. That is $31 higher than last week, and it continues to be onward and upward with gold. This is the highest quote we've had since we've been measuring metal prices since last August. Silver is at $17.08 per ounce. That is $1.55 higher than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $813.19 per ounce. That is... higher than last week. And on May 19th, palladium is trading back above $2,000 at $2,005.04. And it had a really big day yesterday. And it is $137 higher than last week's quote. And on May 15th, copper is trading at $2.34 per pound. That is three cents lower Then last week's quote, aluminum is a penny lower at 65 cents per pound. Lead is a penny lower at 72 cents per pound. Nickel is 20 cents lower at $5.36 per pound. Tin is 2 cents lower at $6.92 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.38. And zinc is 3 cents lower at 88 cents per pound. So what we have here is the precious metals have moved higher with the industrial metals moving lower. To be fair, this is a May 15th quote on the industrial metals. So maybe that has more to do with the divergence because right now, let us not forget that the commodities saw the drop before the stock market. In February, commodities were hurting and the stock market was riding high, and eventually the stock market caught up with commodities. So this may just be due to the last couple of days, but I think it's something to pay attention to. So with that, those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Cameco Q&A from their earnings call, and this features Tim Gitzel, President and Chief Executive Officer of Cameco. And Grant Isaac chimes in there quite a bit, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Cameco. And they talk about all sorts of interesting uh, subject matter, including what is going on with the uranium price, how the coronavirus has impacted the uranium market, Is the company considering M&A? And last but not least, how is its tax issue? Cameco has been dogged by a tax issue for years now. And so it is slowly getting resolved, but it's not there yet. So that also comes up. 
So lots to sink your teeth into. It's a little longer than our average one, but I want to keep everything in there because I think there's nothing quite like this as far as really understanding what's going on in the uranium market. There's a lot of talk. Here is some straight talk from the people that know, to quote John McCain. So hope you enjoy it, and we will see you on the other side. is one that's come from investors that we've been hearing a lot uh, over the last few weeks. So, Tim, there have been a lot of changes in the uranium market since the beginning of March. How is your thinking about the market changed and what trends in supply and demand are you seeing relative to a year ago? Well, there's been a lot of changes in everything since the beginning of March. I think the whole world is kind of upside down. but. You know, that said, if you remember back just just two months ago, the topic of the day was not COVID-19 or or the coronavirus. It was climate change. Climate change, clean air, CO2 reduction, Greta Thunberg. Those things aren't gone. They're still around. Sure, we've shut everything down and and the air's a bit cleaner now, but it's all temporary. It's, It's coming back. We're coming back. The economies are coming back. We didn't solve climate change. So when economies start again, emissions are going to start going up again, and we still have the same problems we had before. So, you know, this is where I believe, and I've been in this industry my whole my whole life pretty much, this is a, where nuclear can play a great role. Safe, clean, reliable, carbon-free uh, electricity. I think the world's got a great chance now uh, uh, with, uh, you know, with the economic stimulus money and the shovel-ready projects and, and the money that's going to be... Uh, uh, floated into to infrastructure to really put it into a, a clean, green energy infrastructure, which includes nuclear. So I think there's a real possibility and a real uh, there's a real good uh, place for a good role for nuclear to play going forward. On the uranium side, obviously we've also seen a lot of change uh, in the last couple months, and and uh, you know demands remain strong for us nuclear reactors are still running and providing that reliable electricity that we expect from them keeping hospitals and ventilators and healthcare facilities running so that's all good supply side a lot more precarious as everybody knows and you've seen the the price moving at least the spot price uh, and even before covid-19 we were seeing concerns uh, with supply we had, uh, and I mentioned them in my comments, trade issues, the 232, that's a year and a half, uh, you know, the nuclear fuel working group, role of state-owned enterprise, all of those things were floating out there. Now we're having real supply issues, Canada, Kazakhstan, Namibia, all having supply issues due to COVID-19. So it's, uh, I'd say it's really an interesting space. Uh, you know, I, I was just uh, saying to some of the team uh, earlier, you know, they've been doing this for three or four decades, and I've seen uh, fires and floods and tsunamis and earthquakes. Didn't have a worldwide pandemic in the cards, uh, but we have one today, and, and we're dealing with it. So it's a, it's kind of a different world we're living in uh, right now. Okay. Thanks, Tim. The next question comes from Alex Pierce at BMO Capital Markets. His question is, what are you seeing in the spot market? How much material is available? Have you seen many utilities competing for the spot market material? Well, we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of movement, a lot of action and activity in the spot market. And, and I would just say Grant and his team have been absolutely neck deep in the market uh, over the past few months. So I'm going to ask Grant to, to speak about the market and just what we're seeing. Grant? Yeah, sure. It's a rather a broad-based um, demand that we're seeing in the spot market which explains why it's been a steady inflationary trend that has now withstood, I would say, two normal month-end game playing that can sometimes go on in our industry. Both March month-end and April month-end have now come and gone without taking any trajectory off that spot demand. It's, of course, producers, and, and we're among them, that are looking to cover their committed sales in the face of both planned and unplanned supply uh, discipline. Uh, we've seen uh, some utility purchase. I wouldn't say it's the dominant part of the spot market. I think it's important to understand that our customers uh, are not free of concerns about COVID and are focused on you know, their own pandemic planning right now. But we have seen some utility demand in the spot market for sure. 
Uh, we've seen some financials with a, with a growing interest in the market. And I, and I think the other theme is uh, we're seeing sellers retreat. You've heard us say before that uh, historically in our market, uh, willingness to sell or the mobility of material tends to be inversely related to the price. And when the price goes up, uh, we see folks less willing uh, to part with material. So this steady, broad-based inflation in the spot market, uh, we expect to continue. You know that our goal has been to buy material uh, very strategically in the product form we want, in the locations we want, um, and quite frankly, in the time frame that we want. And you heard us say at Q4, uh, you also heard us say throughout 2019 that we were we were not finding a very deep market when it came to pounds that were in a can or in a canister and available today. And, and I think what this market transition is showing is that that's, that's true. Great. Thanks, Graham. The next question comes from Greg Barnes at TD Securities. In a recent interview, Kazatomprom's CEO suggested that the role of traders in the uranium market would change significantly without surplus material available to them. Moreover, he indicated that the midterm market could shrink and that utilities could be pushed back into the term market. Does this correspond with your view? Thanks, Greg. Grant, you want to take that one as well? Yeah, you know, I, I read with interest the comments that were made um, by the CEO of Kazatomprom uh, in part because they were absolutely true, but in part because I think it really expressed um, a, a sentiment that, that many of us have had that that, that carry trade business that uh, the traders were involved in was a function of an oversupplied spot market. So as long as the spot market was being used for surplus disposal uh, in a low interest rate environment, you were going to see the temptation to buy material off the spot market and just price it forward on the carry trade. That enabled uh, the, the, the maturing of a bit of a midterm market in our industry, but it also eroded term demand. It, it filled in the early years of term demand and, and I would say bought our customers more time to contemplate what their procurement should be. But as we move into a market where primary production is well below annual demand and where we see secondary supplies playing less and less of a role, the availability of that material uh, isn't there. And, and I think my earlier comments on the tightness that we're seeing in the spot market reflected by that consistent upward trend is, is just a reflection of that. So, you know, I, I echo some of the questions. It's not clear to me where traders are going to get material from uh, in order to continue with that midterm business. And to the extent that um, the financial interests that have funded that carry trade in the past don't have the liquidity that they're willing to put at risk in the carry trade, well, that's going to impair it as well. So then you could see the opening up of more classic term demand as we know it in our industry, which would be a very helpful development because, of course, traders can't offer that term material. They're, they're not producers. They can't offer the long-term security of supply. They don't have a production base. They're just borrowing from the market, if you will. Um, and, and then, of course, once you start to eliminate that temptation for carry trade, uh, perhaps we'll see some of our competitors uh, be less aggressive with their uh, with their pricing for term business because they won't they won't have a sense they have to compete with that spot carry trade anymore and, and maybe we can see the kind of discipline that's necessary to see pricing out along the production cost curve not the spot carry trade so you know I I, I, I welcome those comments and and I think they were uh, they were really accurate. Great, thanks, Graham. The next question is also from Greg Barnes at TD Securities. The UX term price increased this week to $33 per pound, but UX noted that no term activity has occurred. Was the price increase just based on a hunch? Well, you know, I think it's a reminder for, for us and for everybody uh, that, that's in this industry and watches this industry that, that we do have price reporting, but we don't have price discovery like some folks know it in some commodities. We have neither the the frequency nor the volumes where you can truly discover a price on a minute-by-minute -minute basis like you can in, in some other commodity. And so price reporting involves judgment, to be sure. And, and I think this is just the flip side of the result that we saw with their last month reporting, where you, where you saw UX increase the spot price, increase the three-year price, increase the five-year price, talk about the risks of unplanned supply dis dis disruption in the market, and then lower the term price by a dollar. And I think it, I think it just reminded people that they apply judgment, and uh, 
And so this is a judgment call. It's a judgment call that's obviously made to keep pace with the fact that that five-year price in our industry is now just about touching $40. Um, that's a very helpful marker for us and for those who have tier one idled, idled capacity. And, and, and then I think when we just compare the different price reporters, uh, you know, it, it might be a little too simplistic to say it this way, but I, I think one of our price reporters, UX, tends to apply judgment kind of based on yesterday. And, and the other price reporter, Trade Tech, I would say probably applies judgment based on tomorrow. And that's just kind of a consistent way of doing it. But, but if you've been staring at low prices for a long time, then, then, then you're going to always see low prices and, uh, until, well, uh, they're no longer low or they start to transition. So, yep, there's judgment that's applied. Uh, and I, I think this is just the flip side of the judgment that was reply, uh, applied last month. This next question is one that we've been getting uh, quite a bit over the last week since the Nuclear, nuclear Fuel Working Group report came out. Uh, what are your thoughts on this report and will it benefit Cameco uh, and does it change your thinking about your U.S. assets? Well, as uh, everyone knows, I think we reported in the past, we uh, were very involved in the Section 232 uh, business that was going on which transitioned into the Nuclear Fuel Working Group and uh, the report came out to a few days ago, I would have to say uh, we were very pleased with the the tone of the report, and and the uh, I thought Secretary of Energy Dan Bria did a brilliant job of just laying out the U.S. support for nuclear, which has been lacking, I would say, in 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 the past. We haven't seen it uh, that blatant as uh, as the secretary put out, and and then the support for the fuel business, the front end of the fuel cycle. And so, uh, yeah, we were very pleased in that regard. Uh, clearly, nuclear energy to play a big role. Uh, I think he was uh, very honest in saying that the U.S. has taken a step back in the world and uh, some other countries have moved ahead and he wants to regain that territory. The president wants to regain that territory. So that's that was all super positive. Lacking a bit in details, I think more to come on that. So we'll wait and see uh, just how it's going to be implemented. But I can tell you... Uh, with about a billion dollars of uh, investments in the U.S., we're well placed to uh, to take advantage of this new this new uh, appetite for for more nuclear and uh, for support for the front end of the nuclear fuel cycle. So we were happy about it. We asked one thing we asked was that you know production not be subsidized to compete with <laughs> production we've taken off the table and and make a bad situation worse. And we didn't see that. Uh, we see that any production that will be called for will be sequestered and so that was a good news piece. So overall, we're quite happy uh, with the report and uh, we're waiting for more details to see how Chemical can play. Uh, the next question comes from Oscar Cabrera at CIBC. How significant is the announced reduction in Kazakh production due to COVID-19 and how quickly can this production come back on? Well, thanks, Oscar, for the question. I, I can tell you, anytime the, uh, the producer that produces 40 to 50 percent of the world production <laughs> makes a move, it is uh, it's important. And so uh, we've been watching it uh, very closely. Uh, you know, we'll see how long they stay down, how long uh, the COVID impact is there. Uh, we know Mr. Pirmatov well, and we know that the uh, health and safety of his workers and the workers at all the sites is absolutely a top priority, no different than any other uh, company in our space. So we'll watch, uh, we'll watch to see what they do. Uh, there's a good article uh, from Mr. Pirmatov in UX Weekly this week. I'd encourage people to read it. He was very forthright with uh, where they're at. I, I just say a different kind of mining than we do here in Saskatchewan, at least. It's ISR, it's drilling, and it's acidifying well fields. All that takes time. When you shut that down and you want to start up again, it takes a while to do that. So a little different for us maybe at Cigar. We might be able to come back a little bit more quickly. We're used to shutting down for short periods of time in summers and and bringing it back on. We'll see uh, how it works uh, in Kazakhstan, but it'll probably take them a little bit more time to come back up. Uh, the next question comes from Brian MacArthur at Raymond James. What do global inventories look like, and are we likely to see them being liquidated at higher prices? Grant? Well, you know, um, 
we've always had inventories in this industry and uh, you know that's something we've talked about in the past it's something that the different trade uh, reporters have uh, have commented on how much inventories and I, I would just say we look at this slightly differently because it's it's not the the size of the inventory that matters it's it's the mobility of it that matters and and I would just remind you that um, one of the things we were saying about 2019, the way we were characterizing that year, is we were saying it, it really was no longer a secondary supply or an inventory story anymore. What we were seeing in 2019 was was a, a year when we were the only demand in the market, and, and what we were seeing was uncommitted primary production rather than inventory. We were just seeing producers who probably shouldn't have been producing, should have been leaving that material in the ground, we're continuing to produce it, and it was making its way into the market. And, and that's what resulted in that uh, bit of an anomalous result where we would say the market is tight, uh, and yet you know you had a $24 market to, to begin the year. And, and what was going on there was when we were looking for material in a can or in a canister uh, available you know, in true spot, it wasn't there. But if you were willing to wait three months, six months or nine months out, you could find some of this uncommitted primary production. It would leak into the market. So that that's what's been the story. Uh, but that's what's profoundly different right now in 2020, because here you have unplanned supply disruptions affecting disproportionately those sources of uncommitted primary production. You know, we would see them leak out of Kazakhstan, perhaps through the Kazatoprom's joint ventures. We would see them come out of Namibia, we would see them come out of Uzbekistan. That's where we were seeing that uh, that material show up, Brian. And and so it was, it was uh, you know. So we look at 2020 and we say, well, I'm not so sure you can be comforted that three months, six months, nine months out, that supply is going to be there for you, given the unplanned supply disruption that's that's happening right now. So that's how we look at it as more of a mobility issue, and we're just not seeing the mobility which is being reflected in that, uh, in that steady inflating uranium price. Great, thanks Graham. The next question comes from Oscar Cabrera at CIBC. You've mentioned that end user demand has been absent in the market. With all the production curtailments announced, are you starting to see them coming to the market for spot purchases and long-term contracts? I want to make a distinction between sort of Cameco's experience and the broader market because Oscar, Oscar's question is, is right in that uh, we have not seen replacement rate term contracting, for example, at the industry level. And what I mean by that is obviously if the world's consuming 180 million pounds a year of uranium, we haven't seen 180 million pounds of new contracts being layered in over time. So we don't have replacement rates. So by definition, for many, many years now, we actually have been destocking. We've been taking material off of committed sales portfolios, but not replacing it. Um, so if that's the industry situation, it was actually been different for Cameco. Uh, you, you'll recall in 2019, we reported that we had added another 36 million pounds to our term contract portfolio. And then we also said in Q4 that in our pipeline, uh, from origination through to negotiation or execution, we had more pounds under negotiation of uranium or more uh, kgs of conversion service than we'd had for a very long time since Fukushima. So Cameco was enjoying replacement rate contracting uh, for a variety of reasons. So what's happened now is COVID's come along and it's, it's affected in, in two important ways um, the, the types of negotiations that go on for term contracts. The first important way is, is our customers uh, are not immune to this, uh, to this public health crisis. And, and we see our customers turning inward, looking at uh, how they're managing the risk, starting with, we've called it the, the triaging of their fuel supply, counting the fuel bundles at the, fuel bundles at the reactor facilities, then, then checking with the fuel fabricators and seeing what their plans are and how much in process material they have and kind of working their way upstream to make sure their supplies are, are accounted for. So, so they've had, they've been focused on dealing with the public health crisis, which also creates a bit of a delay. But don't, but don't forget, in a market that's transitioning where you start to see a uranium price in the mid-30s in the spot market and a five-year price for uranium that's starting to touch a four, it removes a little bit of urgency we have to complete some of these transactions as well. So between those two factors, our customers dealing with the public health crisis themselves and 
us not being in such a rush because the market is transitioning in our favor, you know, we we're, we're, we th we think there could be some delays, but but I don't need I don't want anybody to interpret that as as that's business that's disappearing. It's business that, from our perspective, is actually firming up. If I extend it to the industry level, just to finish the question uh, uh, that was asked, um, we ha I can't really say I can point to a brand new RFP that's come into the market post-COVID. So, so I, I think it's just too early to be expecting a rush of term contracting driven by the unplanned supply disruption. But as I mentioned in an earlier answer, we have seen a bit of utility demand into the spot market, which I think just reflects the, 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 the greater speed that they can demonstrate when they're buying at the spot level versus the term level. Great. Thanks, Grant. This next question is, again, one that we've been hearing quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. With industrial demand down globally, what impact will this have on the demand for nuclear energy and uranium? And will the reduction in demand offset the supply disruptions? And are there any concerns with delays in construction for new nuclear due to COVID-19? Mm, yeah, thanks. <clears throat> well, no question industrial demand is down globally. Uh, we shut everything down. It was six weeks uh, other than essential services, uh, we've taken uh, most things offline. Everybody's been tucked in at home, which has uh, led to an increase in residential demand for electricity. Probably hasn't offset uh, industrial demand. You know, it depends how long we're in this. I believe the economies are coming back. Uh, you know, whether it's a V-shaped recovery or U, or we've got to get back to uh, to life. Uh, as it will be going forward, and that's going to have factories back open and lots of requirements for electricity. So, again, as I said, I think in my first uh, answer, I think nuclear is going to continue to play a role. It was before. There's uh, you talked about construction reactors. I think there's some 53 or 54 reactors under construction around the world. That hasn't changed. Uh, might have taken a pause in some areas, but uh, back uh, building them again, uh, including. Uh, two units down in the U.S. that are going ahead. So, you know, I I, uh, I don't know what the future looks like. I don't think anybody does, but we've got to get our economies back up and running, and uh, nuclear power is going to play a role. And so uh, electricity demand isn't going down. We need clean, reliable, safe electricity, and nuclear will be part, out of it, uh, part of it. And we've uh, we've got to supply them with the fuel for that. Tim, I might just add that from the point of view of our committed sales portfolio, uh, we've spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks uh, understanding what the demand is in year. You know, the, the commitments that we laid out at the beginning of the year, are, are we going to deliver into them? Is the demand going to be there? And what we're finding is that while the overall aggregate demand for power is appears to be net down in a lot of jurisdictions, we're finding that Nuclear is playing an important role, a critical infrastructure role in those jurisdictions because of some of its really important features. You know, we, t we talk about it, it's zero carbon feature from an environmental and ESG point of view, but, but in times of crisis, it's, it's its baseload power feature that's absolutely critical. I mean, you need 24-hour power to run hospitals and care centers, and you, you don't want a ventilator running on intermittent power. And then some operating features of reactors. I mean, w one of the things that we've long lamented is the inventory in our industry, but that inventory makes nuclear power an important source of baseload right now during a crisis because you, you fuel a reactor and it can run for 12 months, 13 months, up to 18 months without being refueled. And, and as everybody knows that a reactor site uh, is, is actually designed to have a lot less people at it uh, for radiation protection reasons and all of that. But as a consequence, you, you end up with a facility that's really well designed for physical distancing as well. So nuclear's got an, a lot of important features that actually has put it in a good position to deal with this crisis at a time when 24-hour baseload power needs to be part of the critical infrastructure. And, and that's part of what gives us the confidence that says, um, you know, our, our, our business for, for 2020 continues to look resilient despite these impacts. Thank you. So this next question is, a, again, one that we've been getting a fair amount, and it sort of transitions us a little bit more specifically into chemical-related questions. What will be the driver of your decision to restart Cigar Lake? How long will it take to restart, and what costs are involved? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, for Cigar, we'll be driven by the health and safety of our employees. Uh, we, we did that when we, uh, we said that when we took it down, and, and we'll say that when we uh, do decide the time's right to, to bring it back up again. Obviously, safety and health of our employees is important. 
The surrounding communities, uh, you know we operate in northern Saskatchewan. Uh, communities around us lack the infrastructure to deal with health issues on a good day, never mind in a COVID-19 COVID, uh, COVID -19 world. Uh, we saw just yesterday and today again in the community of Lalosh and, and the English River First Nation, which are which are uh, hosts to many of our employees and our, and our uh, contractors. I think there's 50 cases now that uh, have just broken out in the last few days, and we we watch that very closely because th that's not a that's not a good sign. So, health and safety will be number one. We'll look at commercial implications, obviously. Uh, now we took it down, as I said, on our own terms, and so we uh, think we'll be able to bring it up on on our own terms as well. We have a playbook for this. We do this every summer. We will work with uh, Population Health, which is the Northern Medical Health Authorities, with the communities, the uh, Indigenous chiefs, governments, regulators, employees, obviously our partners, uh, Arano, will be working with them. And so uh, all of those things will go, uh, will go into the uh, decision of, uh, of when to restart. Uh, we think we can do it uh, quite quickly. It's not like a MacArthur key situation where we have to rehire the workforce. The workforce is there, ready, willing, uh, and uh, and uh, available to go when the time's right, when the conditions are right. So that's what will drive us. Great. Thanks, Tim. The next question comes from uh, Alex Pierce at BMO Capital Markets. What is your ability to flex some of your sales commitments in 2020? Is it possible to defer, defer a reasonable amount of the 28 to 30 million pounds of your previous sales commitments into next year to alleviate some of the expected production shortfall in 2020, or at least defer Q2 deliveries to later in the year? Yeah, I'm going to build on some of the comments that I, I made earlier about our committed sales portfolio and our, our view of the, the risk of it. And a bit of context, I mean, folks will remember in Q4 last year, uh, the uranium market outlook put out by UX, UXC, um, was, um, you know, concluded that outside of China and Japan, most utilities were at or below their target inventory levels. So just the reminder that a lot of destocking had occurred already, and then you add to it unplanned supply disruptions, and we're finding it's not putting um, the market in a, in a sense of, of complacency, quite the opposite. It appears that, that folks want their material. However, we will, we will obviously work with them. Uh, to, to find out what the appropriate deliveries are, the, the appropriate delivery times. I, I don't know that we'll be asking to flex down. I don't think we need to do that. We've been planning our strategy to source our material either from production or from purchasing or from inventory. This has been part of our DNA since 2016 when we began our production uh, cuts. But so far we see a resilient profile in our committed sales. And, uh, and, and we just don't think we would have to take those kind of actions. And uh, it's that reminder that, that when, when, we see, um, when we see prices transitioning in our market, we tend to, to not just see the mobility of inventory go down, we actually tend to see additional purchasing. That's one of the things that drives backwardation in our markets. So I just, I think within that context, always a possibility, but not one that I, I think we need to uh, explore at the moment. Uh, the next question comes from Oscar Cabrera at CIBC. How long can you go with all your operations shut down before liquidity becomes an issue? Grant, go ahead. When we set out on our strategy of supply discipline, uh, put demand into the market to satisfy our committed sales portfolio, uh, you, you know that those two aspects of it were always backed up by an important third aspect, and that was to have the financial ability to see this strategy out. So, so we head into a, a pandemic uh, where great un, greater unplanned supply disruption comes along uh, and we're very well positioned. Uh, we have 1.2 billion in cash. Uh, we have an undrawn revolver of a billion dollars that we, we don't expect to have to draw. Uh, so we find ourselves in a, in a very strong position going into this crisis. We, we look at the decisions around Cigar, Cigar Lake and Port Hope from a health and safety point of view, and we have the financial ability to shoulder those important and responsible decisions. Um, so, you know, for, for us, when, when we look at uh, a, a prolonged public health crisis, we can withstand that and continue with our strategy. We, we there, for us, there are 
no awkward lurches to the equity markets or the debt markets that we envision here. We can stick to the path we were on. Uh, we had always said that this market we felt was becoming very vulnerable to an unplanned supply disruption. We, we, had, we weren't predicting a pandemic, but our, our history in this industry tells us it will be something. And it, well, it turns out it was a pandemic, but these were the types of unplanned supply disruptions that we had in mind when we made the financial decisions we made. So I would say we're in it for the long run. Uh, we're, we're in it to see this, uh, to go to an appropriate transition that allows us to layer in the contracts required, not just for cigar, but for MacArthur Key. And then once we're operating only from those tier one assets, that's a, a pretty good financial outlook for us. Great, thanks, Graham. Um, the next few questions actually come from Lawson Winder at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Uh, what happens if the spot material gets too expensive for you to purchase? Where will you get your material from? Graf, you might as well take that one. We have, um, when we think about the, the purchasing strategy that we've been on, because we have this committed sales portfolio that we're going to deliver into, we're going to source it. Um, we, we've, all, we've thought about uh, what, what do we do if the market starts to move away from us? We kind of view it as one of those tail risks. Of course, this is an upper tail risk, and it's, it's the one that largely goes. You either have an unplanned supply disruption and or you have sellers retreating, but, but you're buying expensive material in the market. Um, you know, I, I don't think we worry that we won't absolutely find it, but at what price, I think, is, is at the heart of the question here. And there's a trade-off for us. There's no doubt about it, and we've been very clear with that. Purchasing material and feeding it into our committed sales portfolio has a negative margin impact relative to producing it from MacArthur or Cigar. Of course it does. Uh, but it's, for us, it's part of that general destocking, and it needs to be weighed off against two other features. The first is, if the price is rising and we're buying in the market and buying expensive material, don't forget that we have market-related exposure in our current committed sales portfolio that is starting to price at those higher prices. So we're going to get the cash flow and earnings pickup from a rising price environment. But also don't forget that as the price moves up and up, if you're really worried about that tail risk and a true uranium price that's moving rapidly up, it is setting the environment for the terms and conditions that we need for the new contract portfolio to bring back Cigar and MacArthur. And so if you think about it, as long as the value created in the current portfolio plus the new portfolio is greater than the impact of purchasing more expensive material in the near term, it's the right strategy. Then you stick to it because that's how you create value. But it is also important to note that that we, we mitigate risk. I mean, it's part of our DNA. And so we carry an inventory for the purpose of being able to deliver committed uh, sales uh, in a market where we're having trouble finding material. Um, you know, we, we probably have the opportunity to, uh, if we needed to, to borrow material from customers that, uh, that have material parked at our facilities if we needed it, if we needed to take advantage of that, to be repaid when we're producing again. Of course, that would just accelerate the destocking that we've talked about in the past. Uh, we have the ability to access some long-term purchases that, that we were planning on taking several years from now, but if we needed to, we could access those today. But again, that's just adding to the destocking that would be going on. But of course, the big levers are uh, restarting Cigar, restarting MacArthur, and getting those Tier 1 assets producing. So we, will, we have to buy in the market. We're, we have, we're buying with conviction in the market. We'll be very present, um, but we've mitigated the risk as well. Great. Thanks, Grant. Um, the next question, again, is from Lawson Winder at uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. So we talked a little bit earlier, you talked about the contracting activity. What types of terms are you looking for? Are, there terms, uh, are those terms changing as the market evolves, and are they becoming more aggressive or conservative? Well, you know, our, our terms uh, haven't changed in concept. You know, you've heard us say for some time that uh, we have a bias towards market-related contracts, um, and especially now that we're seeing a market that's transitioning, um, we're, we're grateful that we had a bias towards those market-related contracts, and we continue to have that. Um, we, but we deal with a lot of customers who have a bias towards fixed prices. They, they, they have known in the past that the price of uranium was low. It was well below production economics, and, and they were doing a very smart thing. They were trying to lock in 
those low prices that were that were the result of surplus disposal going through the spot market. They were trying to lock that in for the longer haul, and, and that, that's smart for them to do. We would all be trying to do it if we were in their shoes. But, if, but of course, that, that's now changing. And so for us, uh, we have a market-related preference uh, to the extent that we deal with a counterparty who needs some of it fixed. Uh, it's going to be fixed at a much better price than it would have been just a few short weeks ago. So in concept, we, we like the market-related exposure. We like to agree to the fixed pricing if it meets an acceptable return to our Tier 1. Uh, but, I, but I would just say, as I mentioned earlier, that when we see a market that's in transition, it takes away a little bit of our urgency to, uh, to lock in the business because, you know, we, we'd like to see where this uranium price is going to go before, uh, before we lock in too much. So the concept remains the same, but the conditions have tilted more favorable for us. Um, one more question from Lawson. Uh, fuel services was to make up 64% of your gross profit in 2020. How will the shutdown at Port Hope affect that? We, we've withdrawn our outlook, so I, I have to be a, a little bit uh, careful with my comments here. But let me just say, by and large, I don't expect much of an impact. The, 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 uh, Port Hope has absolutely fantastic operators. Um, they, 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 they took a shutdown for health and safety reasons, as Tim outlined. Um, but right away, they, they accelerated some of the maintenance that would have had to been conducted there anyway. Uh, maintenance that now won't be done in the summer because it, they'll have a head start on it. So overall, I, I actually don't expect it to have any impact um, on our outlook for fuel services, unless for health and safety reasons it has to be extended um, longer. But, but at the moment, we're just not sure. So we were saying a four-week temporary shutdown. And if that's all it is, I, I really don't expect an impact. Thank you. The next question comes from Oscar Cabrera at CIBC. Given the challenging economic environment, are you thinking about your capital allocation priorities differently? Well, we aren't. Um, you know, we've been saying for some time that, uh, you know, our number one focus is the strategy that we're on right now. We talked a little bit earlier about having the financial capacity to back up that strategy. Uh, that strategy for us is how we create value for our owners over the long term, how we set the table for our tier one assets to be back operating at capacity. And therefore, you, you get those expected margins that you, that, that, that you deserve from tier one assets. So th that is our pathway. We've, we've then said in the past that you know, if, if it was a scenario where the market uh, remained low, uh, we'd probably stay on a delivering path. But of course, that's not what's happening now with the unplanned supply disruptions. We're seeing a market that is transitioning. Uh, so that maybe takes us more to the, uh, to, to, you know, a, a better case. But, but we, we want to be disciplined and we want to be patient and until we've locked in that, that new business. Um, so that we can see line of sight and a new committed contract portfolio with terms and conditions um, priced in a better market, then we're going to stick to this conservative path. We're going to allocate capital conservatively, you know, and, and, and self-manage risk as, as, as we describe it. Uh, you know, now's not the time to lose our discipline. The transition uh, is underway, but it's not complete. And capturing the value of the transition is not complete for us either. So, um, yeah, no, no, no changes. Uh, and this is a question that we've been getting a lot as well. Does consolidation of the uranium space make sense in the current environment? Well, I can answer that one. I would say no. It's not something we're focused on clearly uh, at Cameco. We've got, I don't know, three, four, five, six of the best uranium mines in the world, the best they've probably ever seen, that are either suspended or shut down right now, so clearly the focus would be on bringing that production back on, getting those units back up and running, including MacArthur River, which is an absolute gem. And, and so that would be our focus. We'd bring those back long before we need any new production uh, in this market. Great. Thanks, Tim. And one final question, and the call would not be complete without it. Um, your Federal Court of Appeal hearing took place in March. How did it go, and when do you expect to have a decision? If you are successful, when do you expect you could get your financial capacity back? Well, we were getting a bit lonely not answering uh, CRA questions because we had them for 10 years in a row and then they kind of disappeared for a while. But uh, uh, look, I'd say this, uh, we had the hearing uh, in front of uh, three Court of Appeal justices uh, about two months ago now. 
in March, and uh, no surprises. Uh, we think it went well. We're hoping to get a decision in 2020 uh, regarding our financial uh, capacity and getting it back. Uh, we can't forget that uh, CRA could still appeal, so that's out there. If, and if, it, if the uh, Supreme Court decides to hear it, you know, we could be another two years in the process. But uh, you know, uh, lots of uh, lots of. Uh, money at play here. If they don't seek leave to appeal and we win, uh, we could expect a refund, I think, of about $5.5 million, and that's just for those tax years 03, 05, and 06. Uh, don't forget we were also awarded uh, about 10 point, I think it was $10.25 million grant uh, in legal costs plus disbursements, another $17.9 million dollars so that's hanging out there that's uh, to be decided by a taxing officer and we're, we're waiting on that and then of course if we do get a favorable decision at the court of appeal level we would uh, hope it would apply to all subsequent years and so that's all out there uh, we're waiting right now uh, we hope it's a 2020 decision we're hoping uh, that the court of appeal is looking at the matter now and we'll get a decision out uh, this year There you have it, the Q&A from the Cameco conference call. I hope you learned a lot. I learned a ton from that one. And uh, thank you for joining us. As always, if you'd like to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, we would be eternally grateful. And otherwise, share this with your friends, email your friends, tell a student. Until next week. Take care.